The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Oh, what a wonderful morning it has been already. So good morning. It's good to see you all. I'd like to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. As a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off of the back table. I encourage you to to have the Word of God in front of you as we go through this. Now, I hope that you're planning to to stay through the service this morning. I mean, I guess, obviously, I hope you don't plan to walk out partway through. That would just be discouraging to me. But I hope that you're planning to stay for other reasons. Uh, One is, as Pastor Jim alluded, we have a a special announcement at the end of the service, and so you're going to want to be a part of that. And then uh, a second reason is, I hope that you're planning to stay for the meal. You know, one of the things that we have really stressed over the years is the importance of, of building relationships within the church. So we do things like we have the coffee available in hopes that you'll arrive early and have a cup of coffee, talk to people. Stay afterwards, have another cup of coffee. On meal Sundays, stay. I want to reiterate what Pastor Jim has already said, but it's not about the food. Now, let's be honest. With Chef Jeff, the food is a big part of it. It's just not all about the food. It's just one more way to connect and, and build relationships. To go up to people and greet the people that you don't know well. But also be ready to be greeted. You know, for some of us, that can actually be harder. It's one thing to ask questions, but to be ready to answer the questions, that's actually maybe a little bit more difficult. So it's important that we build these relationships within the church. So again, our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 25. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? God's word says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Would you please pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the songs that we have sung, the prayers that we have prayed, the time in communion, and for this time in your word. You are our comfort. You are our strength. You are our hope. You are our joy. We thank you that you are faithful. You are never changing. You are holy. Father, I pray for each of our hearts in this room. I pray for humility. Humility to recognize our need for a Savior. Humility to encourage one another. Humility to to sing praises to you. Give us ears now to hear your word and help me to present your word in a way that is honoring to you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, we're going to focus our time this morning on verses 17 through 25. Previously, we've considered verses 1 through 16 of this chapter. Looking at chapter 1 as a whole, to, to boil it down, it is saying, by his great mercy... God caused you to be born again, born to a living hope. So, Peter says, now live like it. Be holy, be obedient, love one another. You have been made new, so live the new life you have been given. Last time I was up, we talked about the topic of of personal holiness. We talked about that we are to, to be holy, that we are to be obedient. Now, maybe that sounds strange to you. Maybe you think, you know, I was saved. God saved me. It's all God. I I don't do anything. Yes, God calls, and God's call is effective. He does the saving, and we respond. To say that we respond, that doesn't mean that we get any credit, but that we responded to God's call. Consider for a moment the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. In tribute to Pastor Dale, it is described as he stinketh. But what did Jesus do? We see the account in John chapter 11. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Jesus called and Lazarus responded. Lazarus came out. He was dead, made alive by Christ, and responded to his call. So Lazarus takes part in his resurrection. He comes out. Christ causes it. Lazarus does it. Christ brings about the resurrection. Lazarus acts out the resurrection. The instant Christ commands Lazarus to rise, Lazarus does the rising. The instant God gives new life, We do the living. It has been said that had Jesus just said, come out, without calling Lazarus by name, that all the dead would have risen in in response to the effective call of God. So Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And then it was Lazarus who responded. If you are saved, know that God called you. God didn't just call and and you happened to be in earshot, and so you responded. It's not just a coincidence. You were called. 
and you were called with a purpose. Lazarus responded in obedience to Jesus. So if you are a Christian, you responded in obedience to the call of God. I hope that helps because this is important as we keep going in chapter 1. Now let's look back at our text beginning with verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter is saying both to his audience then and to us also today that since we have become God's children by virtue of being born again, we have a new life. A new life that is to be lived distinctly different from the old one. Along with our new life, Peter wants us to recognize that we also have a new responsibility to live in obedience to God. In addition, it says that that the Father that we call upon is also our impartial judge. The intimate relationship between the believer in Christ and God as Father does not give license to the Christian to just live however he or she chooses. For God judges morality impartially. The special privilege of calling God Father does not excuse the believer from nevertheless being judged by God. Because every person will be judged by God according to the same standard. So God the Father judges each man's work impartially. He neither looks at appearances nor plays favorites. He judges our deeds and nothing is hidden from him. There is nothing that we do in secret that God doesn't see or know about. The thoughts that go through our minds, God already knows about them. Jesus says that, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul also says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I want to be really clear. This in no way nullifies justification by faith. But God will judge, and Jesus will be proved right when he says you will recognize them by their fruit. This is not salvation by works. It reflects the great principle that our works flow out of our heart commitments so that genuine faith will show itself in works and deeds. Scripture is not saying that you must do these to be saved. Instead, Scripture says that if you are saved, you are made new. And the genuineness of your faith will result in obedience. So Peter here combines two concepts that we can be tempted to needlessly separate. God is both father and judge. It is a great privilege to call God father. But this intimate relation hardly exempts us from obedience. On the contrary, Peter declares, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That is, while we live as strangers in this world, we both think of God with familial love as a father, and 
We retain an awe of the mighty and holy Lord, the creator of the universe, our judge. So, time of your exile, our text says. We, we live as strangers. It means that we are to settle temporarily. Since we are resident aliens in this world, we never fully settle or perfectly fit here. We should neither expect or attempt to do so. And our text also says that we are to conduct ourselves with fear. This is not the fear of someone who is going to inflict pain, but the fear that a child has for parents whom he respects. This is the fear of offending or disappointing or misrepresenting. A fear born in reverence and a spirit of adoration. For some of us, we may still remember the sting we recall when we recall a time when a parent said something like, well, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. People whom we love and respect, that we look up to, we fear disappointing them, displeasing them, making them unhappy. We want to please them. So how much more so for a holy and righteous God who, because of his great mercy, called us to be born again? Since the child shares in character with the Father, the Christian life is to conform to God the Father's moral standard. This is the intimate relationship. The believer is both informed by Scripture and empowered by the Spirit to live a new new way of life that will not invoke God's condemnation in the time of judgment. Formerly apart from Christ, Peter's readers had little knowledge of the God who would judge the world. But the very knowledge of Christ that brought them into relationship with the Father also brings the knowledge of sin and God's wrath upon it. They are therefore to live out their time of their exile in fear of God, now that they know he holds the power to judge sin. One sign of our growing in faith is that as we grow, we become more and more aware of our own sin. In our former ignorance, there were times when we did things without realizing or considering that it was sin. But as we grow, as we read Scripture, as we sit under the teaching of God's Word, we become more and more aware of our sin. And we become more aware of our need for a Savior and more in awe of Him. So what Peter is saying here. As just as human children both respect and obey their parents who love them, so those who call God Father should love and obey Him. If we seek His benefits, if we invoke Him as Father, we should act like His children and aim to meet His standards for the family. When Paul gave a similar admonition in Romans and called us not to be conformed to this world, He said that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service or our spiritual worship. Worship is not not something that we just do here on Sunday mornings. We worship God when we obey Him. No one said it more simply than Jesus Himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Peter's meaning here. So conduct yourself throughout the time of your exile. Then 
verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now, depending on your translation in verse 18, you might see the word ransomed or redeemed. Or in other places in Scripture, we see that Jesus bought or obtained or acquired us. The word is saying that you were purchased. You were redeemed. You are free. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in bondage to sin. You are free. So live like it. Live free from sin. Live holy. Live in obedience to God who caused you to be born again. Today, the word redeem is not a word that we use very much outside of the church. You might redeem a coupon, but not many of us use coupons anymore. We just have an app on our phones if we want to get a discount. But in Peter's day, it was a commercial term of the liberation of a slave or a war captive by the payment of a price for purchase or ransom. In Peter's day, a slave would receive his or her freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or a goddess. Money which would then be paid via the, temple, the temple's treasurer, minus a commission. The remaining money was given to the slave owners with the thought that the god or goddess was buying the slave. The former slave would, would then be free in the eyes of his former owner and society, but would be considered a slave of the god or the goddess. The sum of the money paid for the redemption was referred to as a price. And the slave was considered to be redeemed by the deity. Peter's thoughts resonate with this custom. He describes his Christian readers, both then and us today, as having been redeemed. Using the passive voice that implies God as the subject. We are free, but nevertheless slaves of God. Bought not with a price silver or gold, because those will perish. Those will one day have no value. But with the precious and valuable blood of Christ. So this implies first that our sin has reduced us to the status of slaves or captives. And second, that we cannot liberate ourselves from this predicament. We need someone, Jesus, To intervene in order to secure our release from the power and consequence of sin. The consequences are guilt, condemnation, and physical and eternal death. So the evil that Christ redeemed you and I from at the highest cost of his own life is nothing other than the evil of your former way of life which verse 18 describes as the useless or futile ways of life inherited from our forefathers. Therefore, to to continue to live in our useless former ways is implicitly to deny the value of Christ's death. Peter speaks of our redemption as having been bought with a price. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but as we see in verse 19 but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus gave his precious blood as he suffered the death that we, because of our sins, deserve. Now there's an adjective there in verse 19 that we shouldn't pass over too quickly. 
We are redeemed not just by the blood of Christ, but by the precious blood of Christ. You know, we talk about gems as being precious stones. That is, they are ascribed the highest possible value. Something you regard as precious is what you hold in the highest possible esteem. And Peter is telling us here that precious things go beyond silver and gold. The most precious thing that has ever been on this earth is the blood of Christ. When his blood was shed, it was human blood, but it was holy blood. Which is why some have described it as the most valuable blood that has ever been spilled. We must apply the precious blood of Christ to ourselves, which we do when we put our faith and hope in God. Now this idea of redemption by the blood of the Lamb is clearly rooted in the Old Testament and the Passover, which commemorates the occasion when the angel of death passed over homes on which the doorposts were marked with the blood of the Lamb. When God saw the mark of the blood upon the doorposts, his judgment passed over. And God told the Israelites never to forget what he had done. That very celebration reached its fulfillment in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, as we did just a few minutes ago, in which we remember the shedding of the blood of Christ for our salvation. On the Day of Atonement, The blood of an animal was taken by the high priest into the Holy Holies and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat or on the throne of God as a covering for the sins of the people. That pointed to the one whose blood was precious. Not because of a divinely commanded ritual, but because the blood had inherent value. Now as we continue in our passage looking at verses 20 and 21... He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. While Jesus purchased redemption for his people 2,000 years ago, the current age in which we live is no afterthought. This age is indeed central to the unfolding of God's plan. As our passage says, it is for our sake that Jesus was made manifest in these last times. One thing that we must note about verse 20 is that all those who live after the first coming of Christ live in the last days. It is in these last days that God is bringing to pass his promise to bless all peoples through the righteous seed of Abraham. The time in which we live is indeed important to God's redemptive plan. For through the church's missionary efforts, he is bringing the elect from all nations into his kingdom. The covenant believers play an essential role in God's kingdom. The fact that the interval between the first and second coming is called the last day shows us how important this period of redemptive history is. So important, in fact, that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, yet he was not fully revealed to his people until the new covenant age. The vital part we play in God's plan is shown in that Jesus was not made manifest until the beginning of the times in which we now live. Additionally, 
It is through Jesus that we also believe in God. There is no true faith in God without corresponding faith in Jesus. He remains the central figure of our redemption. For as Peter has said previously, he alone offered the perfect sacrifice to save God's elect. The foreknowledge of Christ's redeeming death corresponds to God's electing foreknowledge of those who would be redeemed by it. Thus God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. The result, or as our text says, so that Christ has been made known to those who respond in faith to the gospel. It is to direct their faith and hope to God. Specifically to the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 reassures us that to have faith and hope in Christ is to have faith and hope in the God of the Old Testament. For, the God, for God raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter indicates that our souls are purified through obedience. Yet the reason we fail to give God due obedience is that our souls are not yet purified. We usually think that purification of the soul takes place so that we will obey God. Yet here, strikingly, Peter tells us that purification is not only unto obedience, but is also by obedience. Having purified your souls by your obedience... The more our souls are involved in our obedience, the greater the purification that occurs. And the more our souls are purified, the greater our obedience will be. So Peter is telling us that obedience feeds purification and purification feeds obedience. The word that we see is obey or obedience. In Greek, it has the same root word as the word translated to hear with the difference being that at the beginning it includes the word translated as hyper. So a more accurate understanding of the word to obey or obedience, as we see in our text, would be hyper-hearing. That is hearing beyond the simple sensory experience of sound. The hearing that God wants from his people means hearing not only in our hearts, sorry, not only in our ears, but also in our hearts. Such hearing brings change to our lives, which is manifested in obedience. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Peter is saying, because of what has been done in you, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brother... Love one another deeply, from the heart. Notice it says that the aim of what is happening is love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. For or unto a sincere brotherly love. So the purifying of the soul is not itself the presence of brotherly love, not yet. The purifying of the soul is for brotherly love. It is to the end of brotherly love. 
Love is the very basic fruit of the Spirit. And this also means that we can grow in this area. So verse 22 means that something more basic than brotherly love is happening when it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Obedience here is not the obedience of love. It leads to the obedience of love. So what is it then? It is the right response to the truth. It is called the obedience to the truth. What is the truth? In context, the truth is very likely the word of God, as it's called in verse 23. Through the living and abiding word of God. And that word of God is called in verse 25, the good news, the gospel. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So obeying the truth in verse 22 means obeying the gospel. So Peter assumes that this audience will obey his earlier exhortations to be holy. Being that they have true faith, there's no other assumption that can be made. True Christians will live lives of holiness. Furthermore, one of the ends in which we live holy lives is that we might have sincere brotherly love. This love flows from our obedience. So, again, God called us to be born again. He called and we respond. But in case we then are overwhelmed thinking, how do I live this life? Consider this quote from Charles Spurgeon. If he gives you the grace to make you believe, he will give you the grace to live a holy life afterward. Our lives are a constant outpouring of God's grace. Not just at salvation, but every day. Love of one another not only flows from obedience, it is obedience. In the very same verse, Peter commands us to love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. The fruit of true faith is holy living that manifests itself in love for other Christians. If we have no love for other believers, then we have not met God's standards for holiness. Verses 23 through 25 say, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You were born again through the living word of God, and this word of the Lord remains forever. It is imperishable, and it is the good news that was preached to you. We need to be present to hear the preaching of God's word. Which means we take times like this seriously. We need to come together and hear the word of God preached. So what Peter is telling us in 1 Peter in chapter 1 is that God, by his great mercy, caused you to be born again. That is done. It has happened. When God caused you to be born again, born to a living hope, now live like it. Be holy. Be obedient. Love one another. 
Live the new life that you have been given. Love each other genuinely. Care for each other. Pray with and for each other. Be generous with one another. The mark of the Christian life is love. And according to the text, our love is to be sincere and earnest. By that, Peter means genuine. It must come from the heart. We must give ourselves fully to it. So in this chapter, we have been told to be holy. We are to fear God. And we are also told that we are to love one another earnestly. Now, if we were to keep going in 1 Peter, we would see more of what this looks like. But we'll, we'll save that for another time. One's covenant relationship with God is never an individual matter. To be chosen by God and set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of participating in the covenant in Christ means necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also chosen. The Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. Now, I want to say, obviously there are times or seasons, there are situations, health issues that prevent you from being in person. But we still love one another. And our desire is to be together when it's possible. So Peter makes a shift here from talking about how to live in right relationship with God to how to live rightly with one another in Christian community. The command to love is qualified by two phrases. Love one another because your lives have been set apart by obedience. Obedience to the truth. The very purpose for which is to relate to others as God intended human beings to relate. And to love one another because you've been reborn with an eternal nature. And love is the essence of that nature. Now, of course, love must be defined biblically. The love Peter has in view is neither warm, fuzzy feelings or friendships around the coffee pot after church. Though love, as Peter defines it, may involve both of those things. Rather, it refers to righteous relationships with with each other that are based on God's character. Peter describes the quality of relationship rightly lived in the Christian community as love. And he goes on in his letter to show how that looks within the community or within the church. Christians are to love one another by obeying the truth by coming to faith in Jesus we have set ourselves apart from the ways of the world and how we used to treat people Christians are in a state of having been set apart by our previous obedience to the gospel now as we as we talk about this and think about this idea of of loving one another let's be honest This is not always easy to do. By a show of hands, raise your hand if there's ever been a fellow Christian that you don't really like, or that frustrates you, that's hard to love. Go on, I'll I'll wait. Seven of you, okay. So 
this can be hard. So what does this look like? The love of which Peter speaks is fervent and accompanied by a, by a pure heart. Scripture says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind and strength and soul. And the second is added to it that we must love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. So our neighbor is not simply someone who lives next door or someone that we go to school with, that we're in a, a local group with, or that's just in the community. We remember in the book of Luke when some Pharisees came to Jesus and asked, Who is my neighbor? Jesus then told them the story of a man who went down from Jericho and fell among thieves, and he was robbed and beaten and left at the roadside for dead. Then some clergy came along and noticed the man. Maybe they whispered a prayer for him before hurrying on their way. I mean, after all, they were, they were likely busy. They had things to do. It was the Samaritan with whom Jews had no dealings who stopped to care for the man. So Jesus asked, So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the Pharisees responded, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Everyone we meet is our neighbor. Loving our neighbor means treating him with care, kindness, and patience, as the Good Samaritan did. It has very little to do with feelings of great warmth and affection. We can love our neighbor actively apart from any personal affection. But, now listen, when we get beyond the neighborhood to the brotherhood, everything changes Love of our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be done earnestly and with a pure heart. We are to have that kind of fervent love, not only for biological families, but also for the family and the spirit, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that includes our church family. In the book of John, it says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the impression that we should make on the watching world. Those outside the church should look at Christians and note that we don't backbite or fault find, that we protect one another with fervent love, the love that comes from a pure heart. This is not natural. Which Peter reminds us when he adds, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The reason we have the capacity for this kind of brotherly and sisterly love is that God has changed our hearts. He has caused us to be born again so that what is not natural can be accomplished by the work that God performs upon our hearts. Love means serving one another. It means encouraging one another. Love is being generous with our time and our resources. Love is coming alongside one another to serve, to pray, to encourage. It means not thinking that we are better than each other. It means assuming the best of the other person and 
the worst of ourselves instead of the other way around. It means showing grace to one another, recognizing that that we will fail one another. We will let each other down from time to time. We will disappoint each other. But we are a family. We show grace. We have all been bought with a price, and that price is the precious blood of Jesus. None of us deserve it. Nobody is more deserving than somebody else. Paul says in in Romans 12, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You were redeemed. You are free. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in bondage to sin. You are free. So we can live like it. Live free from sin. Live holy. Live in obedience to God who caused you to be born again. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your amazing power and work in our lives. Thank you for your goodness and for your blessings over us. Thank you that you are able to bring hope through even the toughest of times, strengthening us for your purpose. Thank you for your great love and care. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you that you are always with us and will never leave us. Thank you that you're an incredible sacrifice so that we might have freedom in life. Forgive us when we don't thank you enough for who you are, for all that you do, for all that you've given. Help us to set our eyes and our hearts on you afresh. Renew our spirits. Fill us with your peace and joy. We love you and we need you this day and every day. 
We give you praise and thanks for you alone are worthy. It is Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.